dive into the heart of the Syrian civil war on insurgency unmasked by the modern insurgent. Explore the historical legacy, geopolitical complexities and human impact of the Syrian civil war. From expert insights to gripping narratives, this podcast offers an in-depth understanding of the conflict. Come and journey through the Syrian civil war with the modern insurgent. Welcome to the second episode of Insurgency Unmasked. And we're speaking with Edwin Dudley Taylor today. Hello, hello. So welcome onto the show. And uh, uh, nice, to, nice to be here. Yeah. So if you would like to explain uh, who you are and what you do a little bit, and we'll crack on so, to the subject. Okay. Um, uh, currently studying international relations and history at SOAS University in London, a school of Oriental and African studies. Um, my studies primarily focus on Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, but you know North Africa and the Middle East um, as well. Um, got a vest, sort of vested interest in the Middle East. Got a lot of family who used to live there um, and work there, as uh, quite a lot of people do. Um, joined the Modern Insurgent in September, I believe it was of last year. So around most time that most people joined, it, actually, um, I've been working hard for them just like everyone else has, sort of getting the journal up and running and excited to be on the podcast. Good to be. It's good to be here. Fantastic. So, as you already know, um, we're going to be speaking about Assad today. Yes. So, from going on from what we spoke about uh, in our first episode with Colin, we did a bit of the context. We went through a little bit about how <laughs> the Assads came to be in power. We explained... Yes little bits about Baathism, we explain little bits about kind of the context behind it all. So today we're going to deep dive into Assad and really yeah. his effects on the whole Syrian civil war and everything around it. So there's Quite an interesting a, character. Yeah, there's a lot, there's really is a lot to go through about this guy because mm. oh yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot portrayed about him in the media that mm. is short-sighted. I think I think he gets painted quite strangely. Yeah, he's he's a lot more of an in-depth character than I say character. But he's he's a lot more of an in-depth person hmm. um, than a lot of people let on. Because I remember back back when I was in high school, like hearing about the um, the gas attack that happened in Syria. I think it was 2014, 2016, I'm not sure. Or well, one of the no, yeah, gas attacks several, occurred, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, the big one, I guess. The one that the Americans um, launched an airstrike on Syria. It was one of their first sort of open mm. um, actions against Assad. And I remember hearing about him then thinking, oh, wow, this this guy, I've never heard of him before. You know, obviously, I was only like a teenager. So, But then, um, so hearing family talk about him, and it's like, oh, this guy seems a lot more sort of, you know, on it i guess mm. then a lot of people sort of let on and then like going to university and learning about him and just reading the news working for modern surgeon you know traveling and just reading stuff about him it's like this guy is a lot more i don't know he's, he's a lot more important than i think a lot of people trying to i want to let make him out to be because yeah you know you know you obviously you can criticize him for all the horrible things him and his regime have done and all the people he've killed he's killed but he's still here you know there's that there's that meme about you know, Assad must go, and then everyone who says that it dies or gets kicked out of office, and he's the one who's still here. So, you know, whether or not there's some sort of, yeah, whether or not there's some like sort of supernatural protection behind him, God knows. But <laughs> you know, but yeah, 
I, certainly, there's certainly something going on to keep him yeah, at the top of got... his stack of cards, which is Syrian politics yeah. right now. Syrian occultism at work is keeping him <laughs> in power. It's horrifying, but interesting person nonetheless. Mm. So I'll go into a bit about how the Assad family got into power. So mm. they first came to power in the 1970s when Bashar's dad, Hafez, who was a military mm. commander and Ba'athist, uh, overthrew the government. They started enacting socialist policies, nationalized businesses, banking, transportation, communication. And after gaining control of the situation, they repressed pretty much anyone that stood in their way, which yeah. we see a lot. We see a lot in the Middle East and we see a lot in other parts of the world. It's not something new, but I think the Assad's really brought a new dimension to oppression mm. they really specialized their ways of doing things yeah which of course we're going to go into quite a lot um yeah definitely. yeah so three decades um bashar's dad hafez was in mm. power this was marked by as we've just said persecution of pretty much everyone he was infamous for having the military put down an uprising in the city of Hama in 82 which is thought to have killed between 10 and 20,000. Yeah. Uh, and then Bashar was born, which is which is adorable, really. Um, nice, little, nice, nice little present. Yeah. Um, his dad, I guess. <laughs> and Bashar went on to be a professional ophthalmologist. So he was an eye doctor with no political experience, realistically whatsoever. Yeah. I bet, I bet. I believe he studied in London, didn't he, as well? Yeah, he lived in London. Quite, yeah, I, I've walked, I, actually, I think I, I've walked past the the hospital, the bit where he studied, and then it was only when I was doing the research for this, it, I was like, oh, my God, this man, you know, dictator, I guess, um, studied here, and apparently, apparently he was a geeky IT guy, according to his classmates, mm. commonly described as, like, a pretty reserved person. Because mm. well, he, he was never groomed for power. Obviously, like yeah. I think, uh, obviously, anyone in the know knows about his older brother Basel, which yeah. is a really interesting story in of itself. Really, yeah, uh, he was the one that was groomed for power his entire life. He was Syria's, not sure we'd call it like boy superstar almost. Yeah, he was the man of the regime, driving fast cars, being very good yeah. with the ladies all of these kinds of things yeah. and eventually that was his downfall because yeah. this is exactly why uh bashar wouldn't was never groomed for power because basel mm. was gonna be the one and he died in a car accident 1994 at the age of 31 yeah. which again there are quite a few despot children who end up dying in really fast car crashes it's quite a common yes. theme it's quite wow it's almost as if they should never go near cars ever. Mm. <laughs> Not risk turning the engine on. <laughs> and yeah, so the circumstances around uh, Bassell's death are actually unclear. There's a few different theories mm. about what could have happened. Um, for example, I read into one that I went down a rabbit hole. Mm. Into a few different theories here. I went down into one that was included that the assassination was ordered by an uncle or hmm. a rival within the Assad family. Uh, hmm. Some speculate he was seen as a threat to the power of Bashar, which I found very strange. When I saw hmm. that um, 
I didn't really because there wasn't the power of Bashar. Like, yeah. So I didn't really. There's definitely a lot on the past and the history of Bashar that is and Basel that's uh, wound up in propaganda, certainly. Yeah. Which, again, it always happens. Regimes quite like to put certain people on pedestals that are definitely. important in that moment. So it's definitely important to notice there's some strange parts to the story if you look in certain places. <laughs> but that's my fault for going down the rabbit hole, realistically. Um, but Basel's death had huge implications uh, for the mm. Syrian regime and Syria's politics. So that's the, one of the first questions I'll ask you is, uh, we've spoke about how he was quite a timid man, Bashar, mm. from how do you think a man like that, upon hearing the news that he's going to be dictator, how do you think he reacts? How does well, one I mean, react? Yeah, it's, I guess it's a complicated one because his, I think his brother studied military science mm. or military theory or something like that. He's got a PhD, a PhD in it. So he's clearly a very intelligent man. Um, like you said, groomed for rule. You know, it, it was going to be him. He was going to be the next ruler of Syria. He's going to rule after his father. And then his brother would be kind of, I guess, either supportive or would have moved to probably Switzerland or something like that. Like, I know some of his family did. And then um, would have just lived there as a normal sort of normal person. Like a, like a lot of um, Middle Eastern, sort of Asian, African, European dictators do. They just kind of disperse after a while and then live in relative kind of almost obscurity within the general population mm. but for Bashar I can only imagine it was quite a shock I mean it, it, this is presuming that he had nothing to do with it I, I very much doubt he did because he was training to be an eye doctor it's not as if he was you know a spy or anything like that or integral to the Syrian regime at that point but you know presuming that he had nothing to do with it he was probably insanely shocked you know young man a geeky man as he's described um, training to be an eye doctor, you know, he's, I guess it was almost a complete reversal of probably how he wanted to live his life. I mean, I don't want to try and humanize him as much as I can, but then I don't want to remove from him the fact he was a person because it's, you know, then you're sort of just stepping into like, propaganda territory, I guess. But mm. um, yeah, it was probably just a complete shock to him because, I mean, he had to take over after his father, who was a notorious sort of Arabic strongman in the Middle East. Um, in a country that, you know, was one of the strongest militaries in the region as well, you know, held off various sort of insurgencies and armed forces and whatnot. Um, and then a sad hit upon hearing this, probably just thought, oh God, I've got to do this now. I've got to take over eventually when his dad dies or gives up power or gets cooed or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's probably just a massive shock, I guess. Mm. And certainly as... Uh leaders go it's pretty big mm -hmm. shoes to fill in the oh, despot world like you're well, looking there at your dad of carry on mm, 30 years of oppression and you have to think hmm i've got to deal with <laughs> yeah how, how, do, I, how do i as well how, how do i do this now as well mm. and then make it somehow worse or you know yeah. i think the, that's, the, that was the, probably yeah. his method of i've got to stamp down even harder i'm yeah, going to show them keep, that i'm not a timid eye doctor yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's an eye doctor with a gun at this point. But mm. So how would you say Bashar's leadership styles and policies have differed from his father? So they're, they're, it's interesting because they're, they're vaguely similar. Um, 
well, some of his policies are similar, some of his aren't. So, but I would say they're more sort of responsive to his environment. Because, um, I mean, yeah, there was the, the sort of the troubles and stuff that ha- occurred in Syria under Hafez. Um, you know, as we all sort of, anyone who's sort of vague interest in Syria knows, you, you, mean, you can go on the Wikipedia, you can go on journals and just look up what happened under Hafez. But um, when Bashar took over in 2000, 2001, yeah. um, so... So, I mean, his, his dad had to deal with the coup in 1970 after he took over from his partner in the sort of the, the not partner, that makes it sound weird, but um, his sort of military, you know, his ally, compadre. <laughs> yeah, his compadre. There you go. That's, that's pretty the best word. Um, so this is after the Jordanian Civil War. I think it's yeah, the Black Black September Civil, um, crisis yeah. in Jordan. So Hafez was allowed to kind of implement a bottom up. So he was completely able to just completely restructure the economy, um, the military, because it, there was nothing there. Before. There was obviously stuff beforehand, but it was they, he was just able to restructure it completely um, because there wasn't really any policies to carry on from before. However, when Bashar took over, obviously, like you said, you know, he had all the the, the repression he was dealing with. Um, he continued on authoritarian, repressive government policies and the style his dad sort of, you know, not pioneered, but used, utilised in his governance of Syria. Hmm. Um, however, there is there are a couple of differences. So he, when he when Bashar initially came to power, he was expected almost to kind of liberalise the economy. Um, so it was something known as Damascus Spring. Um, and so one of the key reforms was reducing state subsidies in order to kind of slow state spending, which, however, had the adverse effect of um, raising living costs for the Syrian population because, you know, I mean, Gaddafi did this. He had oil subsidies, made oil virtually free or extremely cheap or extremely free water. That, that sort of, it's policies that Middle East and North African dictators kind of used almost everywhere. You know, they, they'll give their population free things or extremely cheap things to kind of keep everyone in tow. And I mean, how attractive of a government would it be if everyone, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I would probably go marching down the street with a Union Jack in my hand if King Charles came out and said, all the gas is free and all the food's free. And, you know, I'd be like, oh, yeah, sign me straight up, saluting all the way down the road. You know, it, it would just help everyone, you know, if everything's free or extremely cheap or whatnot. Um, but Bashar kind of reduced those subsidies because the government had no money because it was, you know, early 2000s. No one really had any money. You know, 2008, unfortunately, is when the financial crash happened. Um, so he had to reduce state subsidies everyone's then poorer obviously because Syria's not the richest country however it is it wasn't that bad off compared to some of the other nations in the region but um so we had to reduce state subsidies and then foreign firms couldn't invest either so because you know it's a closed off sort of closed off economy um that then ruined the Syrian economy no one wanted to invest you know snowball effect of no money state subsidies reduced worse 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 and then after that, it's kind of another one of the differences would be his image. So he was, he kind of, Hafez was, was you know, um, kind of like Nasser in Egypt, this sort of strong man, you know, Middle Eastern strong man, you know, repression, oppression of people, you know, anti Israel, all that, wanted to ally with all the Arabs in the area because, you know, um, would lead to sort of potential pan Arabism military alliance which could help the region but Assad kind of or Bashar even put himself off across as this sort of 
attractive western educated because he studied in london person to try and attract outside either investment or alliances um which could have helped but you know we'll never know if that would have actually occurred because you know he proceeded to then gas his own civilians start the civil war get involved in the civil war in 2011 um another one of the differences i would say is probably management style so fez was you know a strong man like we've both just said centralized power in damascus um made many decisions himself however sad himself uh bashar even sorry i keep i keep referring to Assad as um bashar as i said but it's um, hard so when bashar, two. yeah i know it's oh, it's insane um from this i think i think from this point on it's kind of bashar only so yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll say Assad, but um so Assad himself he kind of established varying sort of i guess structures within syria where he could kind of diffuse the power because it would re- prevent sort of um you know like if his brother had taken over he, he would obviously be next in line and the, the person who probably would have killed him would have been him and then it's kind of like it, it's preventing that person beneath him from doing that so diffusing the power allowed him to kind of prevent a coup i guess because he could then it's like oh the, the military intelligence doesn't have that much power compared to the military but then the military also has to have a power compared to the economy and none of the they all hate each other so none of them are going to work together so um to prevent sort of coups from occurring i guess and going back to earlier i said there was some sort of similarities potentially so the opposition his treatment of the opposition it was vaguely similar so brutal suppression of dissent um there's the, like you said the Hamas massacre in 1982 um However, much like the Damascus Spring and the liberalizing economy, he kind of hinted at political reforms. Um, however, when the reforms sort of people were calling for the reforms in 2011, you know, he sent the army in, kicked off the civil war, and then, you know, it's been horrendous ever since. So it kind of the same sort of similar treatment, I guess, is what I would say. Mm. Um, international relations wise, um, so it's kind of pursued a more assertive foreign policy. So, like I said, you know, maintaining close ties with Iran, some of the other varying sort of Middle Eastern strongman states, um, support groups like Hezbollah um, in Lebanon, and I believe there's one in Syria now as well. It's got mm. 15,000 members, which is insane. You never hear about it. Mm. Um, Bashar, on the other hand, he attempted to kind of, you know, when he presented himself as this sort of, um, it kind of, kind of backfired. When he obviously used chemical weapons because obviously we're it's banned chemical weapons are bad so him using these sort of weapons kind of allowed the west to ignore him was to go oh well look, this guy's evil we can't go near him anymore so then he kind of lost out so then he sort of started the whole strongman argument um and appearance uh allied with russia mm. so I, th- I think that's another really interesting thing to go into like as you were saying the similarities and how they handle opposition and dissent Hmm. Um, it's a nice segue into the start of the civil war, really, because yeah, I, I think it's a a prime showcasing of how Bashar al-Assad deals with dissent, because it came, hmm. as I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know, in the Arab Spring, was the hmm. kind of catalyst for it all, as it was yeah, a catalyst definitely. for a lot of change in the Middle East. So, hmm. would you like to? Um, kind of expand on the dissent given in the Arab Spring towards Assad and then his response to it. 
Yes, I mean, it kind of, I mean, there was the, the varying reasons why people sort of rose up and were asking for change, basically. I mean, you had it all happen in Tunisia, Egypt, obviously. I'm pretty sure there was sort of limited protests elsewhere, but also like just across the wider sort of Middle East Arabic region and North Africa, obviously, as well. Um, there was, it was reforms for the economy, for political kind of representation, uh, freedom of the press was also another big thing because sort of that area hadn't really had at that point a free press, much like a lot of people had um, people had had. Um, and then Bashar, uh, Bashar even sorry, uh, he uh, his military strength and the foreign support and the foreign support has kind of taken over as the um, I would personally say the main sort because it kind of they're both sort of linked together. Um, but the mitzvah is military strength. So the you know the Syrian armed forces are nowadays they're still relatively cohesive. This I mean they're still not as effective as they you know potentially should be. Um, considering that they've fought for God knows how like 10, uh, 12 years at this point. Mm. Um, so they're quite they're still lo very loyal to the regime. Or lots of them are very loyal to the regime now because it stopped the defections have kind of tapered off um, on a large scale. I mean there's still obviously you know units every now and then. Defect to the varying lots of Islamist groups or whatnot. Mm. Um, so military support with Russia, Iran and Russia as well, which kind of ties into the foreign support, um, giving equipment, training, whatnot to um, Assad has kind of made such a big difference. Without Russian support, Assad would Assad would be gone. He wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't. He'd probably put up a, a fight, but he wouldn't be have as much power. If not, he'd be, even be there anymore. Um, mm. So Iran as well, they they provided sort of financial support. I think it was something like eight hundred billion, eight hundred million even, sorry, a month at one point. The, they were just basically to prop up his um, regime. And then there's obviously the Iranian proxy militias and whatnot that they're um, kind of putting into the Syrian conflict to either sway it in their way or support the Assad regime or combat sort of Turkish or Saudi um, influence in the region. Hmm. I think that's a really important uh, subject, the funding behind everything, because yeah, I think definitely. it's evident to anyone that knows anything about Syria that the war wouldn't be going on without foreign money coming in and backing mm. every single side yeah, that definitely. there is. Every side mm. has someone from whether it's the Gulf, whether it's the States, Russia, Iran, China, Turkey, Israel, everywhere's got a team in the fight. And it's very sad. Yeah, the, the that, US, every, everyone. Mm, it's very sad that foreign money continues to kind of mm. ruin lives, I guess. I think that that's one of the most interesting things from the leaked emails, the infamous mm. uh, 2012 emails. I think WikiLeaks and The Guardian both played a role yeah. in obtaining it all. Mm. <laughs> um yeah, the gathering support from external actors and nations was a big part of what was leaked oh, in yeah. those documents. Mm. Can you go into a bit more about what else came out with that absolute trove of, I think, yeah. 3,000 emails? Uh, yeah, it's something insane. Like that. Um, yeah, there's a few things. I mean, you mentioned getting sort of gathering support. So Iranian, Syrian officials, and Russian advisors, um, all kind of in 
engaged with each other to try and either get support or money or arms um and like sort of laying the foundation really for the russian kind of intervention in 2015 um and it was just sort of inf massively they tried to influence decision making as well within the syrian government i mean there's three thousand or something emails it's insane how much was leaked by wikileaks and then published by the guardian um there's also image management so the regime was really concerned with managing the public image of itself um so bashar his sort of like i said you know he wanted to present himself as a sort of western approachable kind of leader um potentially modern you know i mean also he came from a sort of he comes from a sort of minority group as well effectively within syria mm. um made him sort of seem almost attractive to against the sort of sunni or you know major shia kind of um groups in the region who you know i mean you had iran obviously no one wants to sort of interact with them um and then it's sort of sunni i mean you got the kind of image portrayal in the early 2000s of sunnis as sort of terrorists and it's kind of because off in the early 2000s it kind of destroyed the region's sort of approachability for a lot of these sort of religious groups and then you got Assad, who comes from Bashar, sorry, again, who comes from this sort of minority group of a Shia um, sect, I guess, and it's almost an approachable person. So he wanted to try and maintain that, and it's just it whether or not it kind of worked out, I don't really know. So, and then there was also surveillance. So the emails detailed like mass, extensive surveillance campaigns conducted by the Assad regime. Um, I think his wife as well was really contacts and loyal businessmen and sort of military people i guess who would um survey sort of opposition or people who were interested in protesting against the assad government and then you know hope, i mean hopefully those people are okay but protect, you know forced disappearances were a huge thing in like, mm. syria in the early 2000s um these emails also kind of showed that talking about Assad and his wife, I mean, there was those sort of leaked emails, which are quite funny between him, him and his wife talking about how much they love each other and made, almost made Assad seem like a human being. It was insane. It was quite funny. It's so strange um, reading about It's so strange seeing him. I think relationship. He, he, he called them her, yeah, called them, he called her his kitten or something like that. I think <laughs> one of them is so strange, but um, some sort of discord mod Assad <laughs> governance, horrendous, but um uh, yeah, the, I mean, the emails kind of detailed spending by his, him and his wife and his family, you know, massive, massive amounts of money. And she um, lives a very lavish life, doesn't she? In, yeah, yeah. She, I mean, I mean, you can trust find images of her driving around in nice cars or wearing really nice clothes and then walking through a bubble strewn. It's horrendous. These, the, the Syrian population is suffering massively. And then you've got him and his wife, you know, rocking around in like $10,000 suits and dresses and it's these whole emails kind of exposed how much the how detached i guess the syrian leadership are and his family from the general population hmm. um talking about his family so the the inner circle the emails sort of provide the dynamics of the how assad had to kind of balance the competing interests which is something his dad had to do obviously um but then when his brother died then there's like no competing interests in terms of siblings so sort of succession is kind of guaranteed i guess um, but then, I mean, Assad had to sort of balance between his cousins and his wife, obviously, and then, you know, the varying other leaders and stuff like that within Syria who are very influential and whether it's religious or military or military intelligence as well, because they're infamous in Syria for, mm. you know, killing.
feeling. And I think it's um, very interesting how you talk about the sectarianism um, that goes along with hmm. being an Alawite in Syria. Like yeah. a very interesting, I don't want to say unique because it's probably happened before, but where a mm. minority has that level of mm. power because it's yeah. very, very unique compared to the it's countries around of. it. Mm. And it's fascinating. So can you discuss a bit more that, like the role in sectarianism? Um, and yeah, ethnic tensions have I, played I, in the Syrian war. I mean, the, there's so many minority groups. I mean, you've got the Sunnis, Shia, Alawite, Druze, Christian, obviously quite a large minority of them, um, minority even. Um, and then you've, you've also, I mean, you've also got the interactions that he has with sort of minorities in other states that are around. However, that sort of Syrian sectarianism kind of is... Um, so it's just extremely diverse in terms of ethnic religious groups, and mm. it's led to sort of tensions because you know everyone sort of is either suffering, so then they hate each other, and then because they hate each other, and there's tensions, and then Assad's gone, oh yeah, let me just get involved in that, and then sort of exploit tensions, and either send people to go to war with each other or recruit um, massive, massive numbers of minorities, and it's just you know, um, so the dynamics of so sectarian dynamics within Syria. So the majority of the population, Sunni. Um, Assad and his dynasty, however, you know, mainly, like we've like we've said, may compose of Alawites, an offshoot of Shia Islam. They're markedly different um, in the region. Um so he um so his policies mainly sort of favoured them. Um so it kind of led to marginalization, discrimination, uh, just sectarian sort of bias. It's just kind of led to sort of um i mean repression of dissent so his so his regime kind of has long employed repressive approaches to dissent uh targeting not only armed groups but civilians um especially sunni communities and minority groups of kurds so that also tied into the outbreak of the syrian civil war was his repression of minority groups and majority groups as well actually this series of majority sunni nation um mm. the guta chemical attack is um on sunni on a Sunni area, kind of, it's made up of people who primarily supported the opposition, led to deaths of like a thousand or something people. I mean, mm. there's estimates going from sort of 200, 300 from sort of Western intelligence to upwards of like 1,700, I believe. So, you know, he killed thousands of people in one attack, and that's just one attack we've heard mm. of. Fully indiscriminately um, as well. Yeah, it, it, it purely because they're opposition. It's, it, mm. you know, imagine if. I guess the conservative government sort of sending like the army to blow up a, a Labour headquarters. It's that sort of thing. It's it went or into a, into Liverpool and started just shooting Labour voters. It's, it would be insane. Um, and he did this on such a massive scale that you know it's it's almost unheard of. The modern insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/ModernInsurgent. Thank you very much. So it's easy to say that minorities have been specifically affected by Assad's oppression. I think it's the main word to keep going back to, really, because yeah. if there's people that are oppressed, they are the Syrian people. Mm. Um, so let's go into some of the key 
human rights abuses and war crimes that have been attributed to Assad's regime during the Syrian civil war? I mean, where do you start? Um, there was sort of, there's been sort of the bombings and just shelling of civilian areas for no sort of particular reason um, in regions and areas that hadn't really had any sort of, you know, I mean, there was obviously like some kind of self-defense or militias in the region or whatnot, but nothing that would pose sort of a threat that you'd need to send an artillery shell into someone's neighborhood. Mm. Um, and you had the, you had the, infamous barrel bomb attacks mm. uh, on Aleppo. I mean, I remember watching those videos where they were like sort of all over the internet of these Syrian helicopters and jets and whatnot dropping these huge bombs on, I guess they were bombs, on um, residential neighbourhoods. It killed hundreds of people, if not thousands. I mean, we, we might not ever know how many people those those bombs in particular killed, and they were massive. I mean, the smoke plumes alone were huge. Mm. Um and he, he bombed the Al-Quds hospital in Aleppo, killed medical staff and patients. Like, you know, there was the... so, And then there was also use of chemical weapons. I mean, we talked about the Guta chemical attack, uh, sort of resulting in hundreds, if not thousands of deaths. Khan um, Sheikhoun chemical attack as well in Idlib caused numerous civilian casualties. I'm not even sure of the amount that that caused. Um, and then kind of moving into that, the repression, there was the sort of repression, oppression, I guess is the word. Um, arbitrary de detentions and torture of sort of anyone from journalists, activists, protesters during the early stages of the uprising, and then obviously afterwards. Um, I mean, I had um, there was an uh, an Assyrian Christian, I guess, militia leader who got kidnapped when he returned from Switzerland because he was he's kind of Swiss dual national, um, and he was sort of involved in training um, Assyrian militias to defend themselves against ISIS and whatnot. And he was kidnapped on his return and then his family never found his body again. I can't remember the, the poor man's name, but you know, they, the, the government said he died of a heart attack. And then when the coroner got him, it was just like, oh, he died of something else. And then it's, it's I mean, it's very obvious that they tortured him and killed him, but you know, we might never ever know because they haven't found the body yet. Um, <clears throat> there, there was sort of forced disappearances. Like I said, you know, there was a, a human rights lawyer by the name of Razan Zaytun, I think, of what her name was. Her colleagues also got disappeared as well. Disappeared, you know, quotation marks. Um, uh, and then kind of going back to the sort of warfare, I guess, aspect, sort of the sieges, there was the sort of prolonged sieges that kind of resulted in thousands of deaths, you know, being severe food shortages, the siege of Eastern Ghouta as well. Uh, siege of Aleppo, quite infamously, led to thousands of people dying purely just of starvation, you know, thirst and medical and diseases and things like that, you know, let alone from just purely being shot or blown up. Um, and then you had the, like I said, there was the sort of bombing of the hospitals, sort of just targeting of medical facilities, and it all kind of condensed, I guess, into this sort of overall theme of just doing whatever he can do to win the civil war. It doesn't matter who can who dies or who suffers, you know, because you had those horrible images of children dying and basically choking to death on their own sort of fluids, I guess, after being attacked with chemicals. It's just, you know, it kind of, it, it's insane how he, he wanted to initially show himself off as this sort of Western approachable leader or approachable Western educated oriented leader, and then immediately going and sort of gassing children. It's just kind of, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just yeah. sort of a trick. It's horrific. I, I, I mean, I literally lost the words even thinking yeah. about a way to describe it. So, um, it's certainly yeah, an it's... unspeakable crime. And I think yeah, uh, when a lot of people think of the Syrian civil war, they think of Aleppo. 
it has mm. been covered Definitely. heavily. And yeah. especially like when I think of it, I do think back to the barrel bomb attacks. Those, I specifically mm. remember the videos and the attacks on the hospitals. It was all Aleppo, which I yeah. find fascinating. Uh, why do you think Aleppo became a hub for Assad's vengeance, I guess, if you, you'd call it that from his yeah. perspective? I mean, it's difficult to say without asking the man, I guess. But <laughs> I, I would say, I mean, I would say it's if I if I could draw sort of a parallel to something that's happening now, um, you know, I, I would I would potentially bring up the um, battle for Bakhmut in Ukraine. It's mm. kind of this symbolic sort of. I mean, obviously, it's massive, massively strategic. You know, whether or not the Russians take it, you know, potentially or whatnot, um, it'd be massively strategic for the Russians to take it. Like just like in, and also it's, it proves a kind of we can do this. We we can win. We can we can wipe out the enemy. We can siege down this city. We can win, no matter the deaths. You know, it doesn't matter. We'll win this. Um, and it's I think it was just important to his image as well. I mean, mm. apart from the fact that it was a huge city, lots of people in it, and you know, resources and just a staging ground for future sort of operations is, you know, securing it could allow him to sort of show off the fact that he is this sort of strong, effective strongman. Mm. You know. Oh, it doesn't matter if he uses barrel bombs. Like in his mind, he's gonna sit there and go, "Oh, I, it doesn't matter if I use barrel bombs," because the people will be grateful that they're not, you know, under the control of someone who hates them more than I do. Yeah. You know, so it's almost the perfect it's just... propaganda piece for the yes, regime. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's, it is. It's put on this pedestal, just like the battle for Bakhmut is put on this pedestal, and you know, potentially if the Russians take it, I know there's sort of reports that they have taken it or whatnot. Mm. Um. If if and when if the Russians take it, hopefully they don't, obviously. But um, you know, if they take it, it's kind of it'll it'll, it'll Putin will be able to put this on this post just like Assad did with Aleppo, and he'll be like, oh, look, we took this, like we can do this, like we we've won, or you know, maybe not we've won, but we're gonna win. So it's, these guys might as well give up, sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, like you said, it's just a perfect sort of propaganda piece. Mm. And how else has Assad utilized propaganda to? kind of shape that narrative yeah i mean there's sort of varying state-run sort of media in um syria you have al Baath, which is the you know the sort of newspaper the physical newspaper you have syrian news which is state-run tv uh radio damascus um syrian arab news agency which i think operates in arabic for english and french um and these kind of just so just due to the sheer i mean he covers all the bases i mean also that online they'll, they'll have sort of social media accounts kind of propagating sort of Syrian government positions and whatnot. Um, you might even have help some of the Russians because they're sort of infamous for their sort of social media campaigns that kind of either demonize opposition or go, oh, you know, what we're doing isn't as bad as what those guys are doing. So we're, we're, we must be the good guys. Um, yeah, just due to the sheer amount of propaganda outlets, it kind of allowed them to sort of shape public opinion. Um, you know, state-run media outlets allow the government to propagate the narratives that Bashar's representing the government as the sole legitimate authority against, sort of, well, I mean, against ISIS, so against terrorists and against opposition groups. You've got the Syrian opposition, you've got Turkey obviously operating in the north, the Americans who are kind of brazen, or were brazenly kind of operating with impunity, um, supporting Kurds and whatnot. Um, and it, sort of, and it just also allows him to downplay atrocities as well. So, like I said, you know, he sends a barrel bomb into a hospital. He can go, oh, yeah, there's terrorists in there. You know, without proof that there is otherwise, and because his news sort of, I guess, spiderweb um, 
allows them to go, yeah, there was terrorists there. There's no proof there wasn't terrorists there. And then obviously you'll get independent reporters who go in there. So you, um, you know, I think Vice did something like this. They they went into hospitals and you got varying other sort of Syrian on the ground sort of phone recordings which you can just find all over the Telegram or live leak or, or just over the internet showing like children dying and it's just like you know it allows the the west and i guess other sort of people to really see assad for who he is he's not sort of this innocent man he's this you know horrible person um yeah dissemination of sort of official statements by assad just helps us shape events in the favor of the government um so then i guess the opposition sort of demonized labels for you know foreign back extremists because you had sort of chechen um like russian chechen sort of um islamists who would go to syria on mass and then either return back and forth back and forth to sort of engage in fighting um yeah and then it, it kind of i mean it's just it's insane it's it's, it's something that we don't really see here as well and because we i mean we're i guess blessed in a weird way that we're allowed to sort of you know have sort of podcasts like this or journals like the you know the modern surgeon or things like popular front or our wars today and things like that on instagram all these sort of varying sort of news agencies that we can have and it's you know it's completely i could walk down the street and not be bundled into a, van, a van and then like drowned in brighton pier or something like that whereas like in syria you know if you're reporting on assad and then he his mate his mates catch you and then it's like oh brilliant i'm dead now you know you're mm. never going to get out of there um because you know independent media is often just insanely targeted and suppressed um how like you know, I mean, I mentioned Telegram, actually, um, things like that. I mean, you can go on Telegram and within five minutes, you can be on a Syrian opposition chat or an ISIS chat even. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's insane. Like, I mean, that's how they recruited so many people is through apps like Telegram, Instagram, Snapchat, whatnot. Yeah. Um, but this sort of independent media outlets like Telegram, can't, if I, I, would, I would put Telegram up there as kind of like the, the most important one, hmm. um, kind of allows people to, in especially where we live, in the west to kind of see assad for who he really is you know because you can get videos of atrocities or attacks either from either side obviously. every couple of hours you've got yeah yeah i mean i mean i i'm in a couple of chats right now for work for the like you know for the modern surgeon and i'll just get a notification ping up and it'll say oh new attack in syria or hmm. you know drones drone strike footage rush in russia from a russian and it's like why it's like how am i getting this sort of footage of like russian drone strikes in ukraine mm. versus and then I'll, I'll, it'll be like oh yeah isis car bomb it's like it's insane how these how this sort of independent platforms um allow us to kind of get ulterior uh ulterior sort of um potential narratives we might not see in the news mm. whereas in syria it's it's starting to slowly kind of because everyone's kind of getting a bit more access a bit more phones you know you i you can go on instagram and find sort of images of syrian opposition fires it's insane you've got this image there's a guy i follow on instagram i can't remember his name is who he was a, he's an op he he's an opposition fire against the syrian government and he's just posing with this sort of fully kit out ak every single photograph and it's like you wouldn't have that 10 years ago you know we we no one in the west knew about the opposition apart from like military intelligence and whatnot but it kind of allows us to displace this invincible narrative that Assad is able to put out through his sort of state-run media. If we look at how he's utilised, like, the economy and the patronage networks he's built up over time, how has he maintained support using the key factions and kind of that core base of elites during the civil war? <sighs> yeah, I mean, that's... That's something that's been integral, apart from I would say foreign support, really to 
keeping his sort of people alive, oh, his state alive, even sorry, not his people, but his his state and his sort of family, I guess, in power. Um, you know, he he maintained control over sort of energy, telecommunications, construction, finance. And this allowed him to sort of distribute economic benefits and contracts to supporters, um, and people who sort of support his regime, whether it's family or just sort of influential people in Syria. Uh, allowed him to sort of maintain influence. <laughs> so he ensured the support of the you know, key economic sectors and they can only sort of really operate with his permission. Um, and then, go, yeah, I mean, you, you, we mentioned the sort of Alawite support base. Due to the sort of patronage, I guess, of his of the, their, the minority in Syria, it's kind of allowed sort of favourable treatment on his part towards them and it's played a sort of significant role in his power structure. Um, sort of allow Assad to base his regime upon an economically empowered minority and then he can just rely on them for unlimited amounts of support because if they're the only ones with money and then you know mm. who, who's just who's to say that he can't just keep drawing on them um you mentioned the sort of patronage networks so you know there's so many to to mention and name but um so one that i would always tell people to sort of look up is um so sort of the varying militia groups so one of them is especially the Shabiha militia group. Um, so it's so an Alawite minority or formed mainly from the Alawite minority, um, initially established in order to protect regime sort of interests. Um, how they've been, they're sort of known for targeting and um, engaging in human rights abuses, um, sort of shooting civilians, looting civilians, sort of businesses and housing, and you know, committing horrible sort of sexual crimes, it, it sort of ranges. Um, and just sort of in re return for loyalty these groups are allowed to sort of act with impunity. They're, you know, sort of cartel-like organizations, really. I mean, there was sort of Captagon pills, which are these sort of like, I, I, I don't know what, it's like sort of, kind of like a sort of methamphetamine sort of derivative sort of thing. And th these groups are allowed to sort of produce that. Whereas, you know, obviously the majority of the population, either for religious reasons or personal reasons, won't take sort of drugs. But then these groups are allowed to sort of produce these things which is just which wouldn't happen without his sort of patronage um and it kind of almost links into sort of i guess cronyism sort of him allowing kind of you know people going oh yeah riding on his coattails and saying yeah go go get him boss you know that sort of thing and it's it's you know i mean one one of the examples i can think of is sort of rami mcluf who was a guy who was a close associate and a cousin i believe actually as well um i was sad and he he in particular sort of mass mass amounts like billions and billions of dollars of wealth and power through sort of preferential treatment business deals whatnot through the early 2000s um i think his i think I, I believe his his family sort of tribe and assad's family and tribe were the two that were really loyal to colonial powers so they got oh, okay. put in power and then obviously they're kind of i mean it's just like um uh the saudi sort of government you know mm. They're, they're they're in power because they're they wanted to work with the colonial powers um and these two groups were put in power or they these two tribes were sort of elevated amongst others because then they could work with the sort of colonial powers and these guys eventually descended from them you know 80 years later or whatnot um yes and then so rami makluf he was this infamous i guess billionaire within syria i think i believe he was the richest person in syria at one point um However, he had sort of public disagreements only a couple of years ago. I think it was in 2020 between him and Assad. And he got stripped of his contracts. And I believe on Facebook, he put something out saying, I'll only pay the, um, I'll only pay Assad, not the Syrian government, because he believed that sort of there was people coming out to get him. 
from the Syrian government, uh, which, you know, whether or not that's true, it's probably worth sad telling them to go get him. But, you mm-hmm. know, um, uh, I'm not I'm not even sure what happened to him now. He might have sort of disappeared or he might have been living in Switzerland, kind of like a lot of, yeah. you know, these sort of people go and they flee. Um, and yeah, this it just, it just kind of shows how Assad's kind of maintained close control over his associates and and I guess the economy and the key sort of key factions. And it's kind of if he's maintaining these sort of ties, it kind of links back to the distributing power amongst the um, Syrian political and economic structure because now he can, w- without him, none of them can operate or work properly. So he can kind of just restrict them, kill them, disappear them, whatnot. And it's just all allowed him to maintain a lot of control during the civil war. It's, it's always blows my mind when I look at um, either the funding or the backing for these various leaders. Mm. And I always think like, it doesn't matter who I supported the minute chemical weapons or mm. like extended siege warfare, like yeah. surely that's the line in the sand where you're like, all right, I picked the wrong side. Yeah. And we'll dive back into, I think it's important to dive into the siege warfare and the chemical weapons more because it's such an important aspect of the war mm. and the discourse surrounding it. So how how has the regime employed these horrors beyond human comprehension in the civil war? I mean, it's... It's, it's it's almost sort of unmentionable i guess the scale i guess the i would say the the how widespread they are i mean i mean we've we've named sort of a few it's sort of a few key events i guess that most people might know of um and then you i mean you've got the gassing of sort of kurds and assyrians which happened uh, the chemical weapons which you know i mean he was i mean he he claimed that he didn't have any and then the I believe it got it got exposed that he did have them, and then he said, "Yeah, we do have them, but they're only for testing, and we're going to use them in defense." And then he did test them, and then they got concentrated, I believe, in um, on the coastal areas because that's where like a lot of the Alawites live. So mm. it allows them to sort of maintain a lot a lot more secure control over these stores of chemical weapons and stuff. And then he did use them again and again and again and then the u.s launched that airstrike which i can't i can't remember the date or the location but it was no. quite what yeah i mean one of many airstrikes obviously but um they launched the airstrike and then just destroyed a lot of chemical weapons and then they sent inspectors there and then they found there was obviously chemical weapons there was sarin gas anthrax i believe was found as well it's yeah. these things that you know like that we have we haven't used in the west for almost 100 years at this point you know mm. and it's I believe it's like a hundred years because I'm not sure what happened during World War Two. Especially, I'm not talking about the Axis, but I'm talking about those allies. We, I'm not, I'm not sure if sort of chemical weapons were used on our side, but so. yeah, I don't think so. And it's like these are things that we haven't used in over a hundred years at this point. It'd be a hundred, sort of hundred four years since the First World War now. So mm. these are sort of barbaric. I don't, I don't like using the word barbaric because it sort of implies a, a structural thing, but barbaric essentially usage of weaponry, which should never be used because it's mm. just it's insane that he's this the usage of these weapons has kind of allowed him to enable control i guess um because he can just threaten to send a barrel bomb in or get a chemical weapon in or gas in it's just yeah it's horrible mm. i think it's also important to note how you die 
in a chemical attack. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people really know how nasty it is. Mm. I don't think there's many worse yeah. ways to die. And I think the best I've obviously I've looked into it quite a lot uh, recently mm. for the podcast and it's an interest of mine anyway, because I'm a avid World War One um fan, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah, fan is yeah. the right word. No, no, I I know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I Enthusiast, I guess. Potentially Yeah, I stand up there with my fist up going, Yeah, we'll bring on World War One again. So <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. I had could several family members die in the Somme and mm. I remember looking a lot into mustard gas and yeah, um, yeah. The other one, mustard and oh god, yeah, I can't uh, remember. Chlorine gas. Was, chlorine gas. Is it chlorine gas? Yeah, chlorine, chlorine gas. gas was first, and then it was yeah. uh, mustard gas second. Um, and the best description I've ever heard of what it's like is drowning on land. Yeah, which I mean terrifies me. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I I mean especially those poor children who couldn't have done anything. They can't run away from, I mean, adults can't run away obviously as well, but these poor kids, I mean, there was literally photo. I mean, if you, I think I'm pretty sure if you look up on Wikipedia, actually the Guta chemical attack or one of the chemical attacks, I'm not sure the, mm. the image that pops up on the side of the screen is like of basically a pile of children who are, they're alive at that point in the image. But I mean, I think it's easy to say that the actions of Assad, mm and especially the chemical weapons and prolonged sieges and all these other horrors mm. it's had a bit of an effect on the refugee crisis slightly oh. so yeah. how yeah. how can we even begin to explain how assad has affected the refugee crisis I, 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 it's, it's, it's speechless because it's, 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 I don't want to say it's like an obvious answer, obviously, because, you know, for some people it might not be obvious, but yeah, significant, insanely significant. I mean, so internal displacements for the first one I'd go to. So the policies he's kind of implemented, whether it's you know, chemical weapons, sieges, whatnot, um, yeah, instrument of violence, it just caused mass displacement within Syria. Um, mm. So millions and millions, it's insane, millions and millions of Syrians. Have been forced to leave, flee their homes, and these are people who would otherwise have just stayed in Syria and kind of lived their lives and whatnot, like we all would. Um, yeah, that's sort of seeking safety in just other parts of the country, it's becoming sort of internally displaced as well. And then you got, they, they, I believe the terms internally displaced persons, I think, is the term for sort of refugees within their own country. Um, sort of mass amounts of suffering. Um, and then that obviously ties into the sort of refugee crisis, like you said, so refugees in neighbouring countries, which is, I mean, here in Europe, we're, we know about this. I mean, if you've ever been to sort of places like Italy or Greece or anywhere sort of in that sort of the route, I guess, is the sort of route upwards in sort of Germany, France, or I guess all over Europe, actually, the effect on those sort of countries is, you know, I mean, Italy's got a, is the granddaughter, is, is she the granddaughter? Great granddaughter or a relative or something? I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the links are there, but it's you know, it's you got a effectively sort of neo nationalist. I don't want to say fascist. Yeah, Yeah, fascist. I guess. Yeah, (laughs) neo fascist sort of ruler. And it's like these sort of people would have been it would be insane saying, "Oh, yeah, that Italy's going to have a fascist ruler again." It's like again, they've had one before, and then not only for it to be another one, it's a relative of the previous one. You know, so it's like this sort of refugee crisis that Assad kind of egged on, I 
I don't want to say he encouraged it because he, you know, you'd obviously probably prefer if his civilians say, but his policies kind of pushed this, um, the development of a refugee crisis is massive strains of resources, infrastructure, social cohesion. I mean, um, there's varying reasons like Brexit, for example, um, varying reasons why something like Brexit occurred. And then in some sort of coastal places, I mean, we're the furthest country, or apart from Ireland, we're the furthest country from Syria and Europe and Iceland, obviously, sorry, but you know, um, and we had our share, I guess, probably not enough or as much as it should be of these poor people. However, it's, you know, the sort of Syrian refugee crisis was listed as one of the reasons why some people voted for something like Brexit. I mean, it wasn't like the major reason, obviously, but it was one of the reasons why. And it's like, we're the fir- we're one of the furthest countries that from Syria and the refugee crisis. And yet, you know, Assad's policies may have influenced people to sort of separate us from the union, the European yeah. union. So it's, you know, it's just, it's crazy. And then sort of, yeah, going back to the, how it's sort of just affected the wider sort of refugee crisis, the humanitarian crisis as well. So his policies are sieges, restrictions on humanitarian access as well. So restricting NGOs from giving food, water, medical care, um, sort of hindering deliverance of humanitarian aid. So just, I mean, on par with, in my opinion, on par with sort of these chemical weapon attacks and gas attacks and whatnot, because it, these people, like, you can't they can't eat food now, because, I mean, I'm not sure what the state of agriculture is like in Syria, but I can imagine it's probably not enough to feed the millions and millions of internally displaced Syrians and then other refugee groups, obviously, have been mistreated and whatnot. Um, just prolonged suffering of, of refugees, I guess. I mean, I'm, I, yeah, it's, it's crazy. And then obviously none of the, none of the ones who are in Europe are going to want to return. So returning refugees are, is another thing I would sort of bring up about his impact on the sort of refugee crisis through his policies because... So his continued leadership and just sort of lack of a comprehensive, I guess, political resolution to the civil war just posed sort of massive challenges for safe return of people because they're not going to want to return to a flattened village, are they? You know, why would they? I mean, it's, it, again, I'll, I'll, I'll draw comparisons to the Ukraine conflict. I would be very, very, very surprised if a lot, if, you know, eventually when the war ends, if these sort of millions and millions of ukrainian i think mainly women and children ever return because and it's just like the syrians you know i i, I wouldn't want to return to a war-torn country where my my house has been set on fire and bombed or my husband's died in the war or whatnot like i can't even my begin to imagine died. how painful yeah it would be. yeah exactly why would you even want to associate that whereas you've got potentially a, a semi-decent life in a country like france germany the uk it's like Ireland, you'd, never, wherever. you'd never return to your house if your spouse had been murdered there. No, definitely so I, don't, not. I don't know why so many people expect Syrians just to go back and... Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, refugees and have been demonised mm. incredible amounts in the West. Yeah. Can you discuss the role of foreign militias and paramilitary groups in supporting Assad's regime and kind of what they've been up to in the conflict? Because it's a big part <sighs> of the civil war. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, such a broad topic in yeah. within the broader topic of the Syrian civil war. However, um, yeah, so foreign militias, paramilitary groups, they played a cr- quite a crucial role. I would, I you know, in my opinion, um, in sort of supporting him um, and his regime during just during the sort of wider Syrian conflict. Um, they've sort of provided substantial military assistance, manpower, ideological support, amongst other things, uh, to sort of bolster 
Assad and his, the regime's forces. I mean, so their involvement's just had several significant impacts on the dynamics of the conflict. I mean, you've got sort of Russian paramilitary organizations, the Wagner Group being one of them, quite infamously. Um, Slavonic Corps, which was the sort of progenitor to Wagner Group, um, failing quite quite large, like, you know, largely in operating in Syria and then reforming under Wagner and then doing, you know, I don't want to say well, because it kind of makes them seem like, you know, but doing quite well. And then there was obviously there's that massive, uh, I think, I believe it was like two Wagner advisors led a force of Syrian fighters against US military. It was, it was insane sort of levels of proxy conflict. And then mm -hmm. the, they all got wiped out or something. And then oh, it's, just, it's, it's, it's insane. It's something from like a video game, sort of levels I mean, of storyline. And it's just, oh. you could even look the other way where there were, I remember watching videos about the fight against ISIS and you'd see russian american and iranian mm. fighters yeah like actual soldiers all on the mm. same side yes Working i mean together doing operations together. yeah hand in hand you know daisy chaining their way across syria it's just like <laughs> i mean i'm not gonna i mean fight against um, isis like you know team up with whoever you want sort of thing obviously but yeah. the i mean once the they kill the last sort of isis fire and then they were standing there kind of pointing at each other going oh my god we should kill him next because he's the bad guy and it's like and then it kind of you know brings back memories of like memes and stuff of people point that the spider-man pointing meme they're all looking at each other like are we the bad guys from you know um peep show and things like that it's just it's crazy they're all sort of pointing at each other going are we the evil ones and then the syrians standing in the background going like guys please just leave my country i, I just want to live in peace you know but um yeah sort of going back to the sort of the role of pmcs and foreign militias you got you had slavonic core which so they're talking about the russian ones um because they're quite I would say infamous mm. um, in their operations. So you had Slavonic Corps. So they, the, they were Russians' sort of first sort of experimental type of PMC. I would, I would say the Russians kind of gone. Oh well, yeah. I know we're a signatory of the um, the 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 UN Charter that bans mercenary organizations, basically. But they were like, oh well, we're within Syria, so it doesn't matter. You know, no one cares about Syria, do they? So might as well just create this new sort of PMC organization. Um, they got wiped out. I mean, Slavonic Corps got destroyed. They were kind of doing sort of frontal attacks, things like that. They they didn't really operate effectively because obviously, you know, it's hired guns. They're not gonna. This is it's, it's not it's not the Congo in the 1960s where you're fighting against people who don't really know how to fight. I don't want to use that because obviously they did know how to fight, but you know, didn't weren't fighting against sort of semi-professional militaries. They were fighting against sort of civilians with AKs in the jungle. But mm. this is Syria, where these people have been fighting for the last 10 years, you know, 10, people five, are six either, years. People are either dead or very experienced fighters. Yeah, like... exactly. I mean, yeah, the ones who are alive know how to fight because they, they've survived mm. that long. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Slavonic Corps changed to Wagner when they returned because I think they got recalled, didn't they? Because they were just failing so miserably in mm. terms of their sort of, I mean, yeah, they probably were effective, but their stated mission objective, they failed to do. And then they got sent back under the name Wagner Group, which I mean, everyone who is even even like my mom, my mum knows Wagner Group now. You know, she watches yeah. the BBC every now and then. Your mum probably knows them. You, I mean, we all know them. You know, um, yeah. They the Wagner Group worked really well in supporting the Syrian regime. I mean, there yeah. were you had ex Spetsnaz members in there, and they're some of the best people fighters. You got you had ex sort of 
veterans of the Chechen war in there as well. It was, it's just crazy. You had these sort there of were train points where killers. it was just Russians holding down the airports, main roads, and yeah. infrastructure for the Syrian yeah, exactly. regime. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was crazy. I mean, uh, it's oh, it's insane. You had like joint sort of special operations um, between the Syrian special forces, you know, quote unquote special forces, and then the Russian Wagner Group special forces. I guess that's kind of what you want to use the term. Um, and then also training. They've been training people as well. So Wagner's just been on a training sort of mission in Syria and then also, you know, in Africa and whatnot, but training the Syrian army. And this undoubtedly had an effect on their effectiveness. You know? And it's interesting um, you link it to Africa as well, because I think Syria has been their blueprint for yeah all of their current missions, whether you look at Sudan or the CAR or Mali, yeah. like, yeah. Or is, it, is it Mali or Burkina Faso? Maybe both. I think it's both. I think it's yeah. both at this point. Yeah. Like, there's an endless list of yeah. conflict, like conflicted yes. nations, I guess you'd say that yeah. have Russian troops as a big stalwart of the conflict. Yeah. Now. I mean, and I, I don't want, I, I obviously don't want to, excuse the sort of usage of mercenaries or pmcs in these sort of conflicts but i mean if you're an african country for example and you know france who was your colonial master for the last 100 years approaches and goes yeah you guys should do it like this which is exactly i mean this is exactly what happened in um was it mali i believe yeah i believe mm. it was mali the, the french government was like yeah i mean you had i mean you had the operation barkan and servile and uh, whatnot and uh, i can't remember what the there's another operation i can't remember what it was called but um where the French military was just like, yeah, just operating sort of with impunity, basically, in these Sahelian countries. And then they were just like, mm, yeah, we really don't want our old colonial, you know, masters to... Well, because they kind failed of as well. The French did very yeah, yeah, poorly the, they, they, they They failed on a large scale. I mean, not into, I mean, there, was, there wasn't that many French soldiers dying, so it wasn't failing in, t in sort of like a mm. military... They, loads of French soldiers died, but they did nothing. And if anything, I, I mean, I wrote, I actually wrote about this for um, my one of my university sort of pieces that, that I analysed the the Operation Barkhand's effectiveness in um, the Sahel. And you know, if you look at the statistics, the amount of terrorist attacks increased after Barkhand um, started. So it, there was a sort of an initial dip, obviously, because terrorists are scared of dying, obviously, and then. There was just a huge increase of these people, sort of, you know, it, of attacks afterwards. And and then Wagner Group, like we go go back to Wagner, is they they're going to hire these like, the Russians who are, you know, for all intents and purposes, putting themselves across as this sort of anti-Western or anti-colonial. Because a lot of African governments view Europe as still as colonial powerhouses, as, as they rightfully should, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then the Russians come along and go, yeah, look, we've got these extremely trained guys who know how to kill, because that's what they are, they're killers. You know, these extremely trained soldiers and killers and, you know, whatever, who we've trained in Syria fighting against ISIS, and then you bring them in and, oh, wait, you know, you've got Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb, you know, oh, let's bring these Russian guys who know how to fight an organization like AQIM into the Sahel, and then, you know, it's just, it's just insane, because you're bringing in trained killers who know how to do it, trained and who then also mm. trained Assad's armies. So it's just kind of the geopolitics of Wagner and Assad is it's almost mind boggling how a Russian paramilitary organization trained in Syria, fighting in Africa, has then transferred to Ukraine as well. So it kind of links in all of these places that really should never have linked ever. 
mm. not not in like a you know determining who they should talk to sort of thing but these places just shouldn't have ever interacted and now you've got one organization wagner being one of them uh, or you've got multiple organizations wagner being one of them yeah. that's sort of pinning them all together mm. and then, definitely fascinating like the yeah, scale and, of it all. And then, yeah, the scale is insane. And it, yeah, going back to the scale in, in Syria, for example, but not even in the example, sorry, going back to Syria, you got the Iranian militias, the backed militias, you got Hezbollah um, being one of them. Um, not, sorry, not Hezbollah being one of them. Um, oh, Hezbollah, Hezbollah being one of them. So these groups that Iran has sort of backed up in Syria, uh, Fetimi divisions, one of them kind of brings this at the forefront of my mind. Got these, they, they kind of just bring up these proxy militias. There's hundreds of them. I mean, just going onto sort of Wikipedia or just the internet in general and just typing in sort of Iranian-backed proxy militias in Syria, and it, there will be an entire list of groups which you have never heard of. And these these aren't small groups either. I mean, some of them are small groups, but some of them have got thousands and thousands of members. So Iran as well is kind of an understated partner, I would say, in pinning Assad's regime in place and keeping it alive, you know, through sort of foreign militias, proxy warfare groups whatnot um and this just the conflict the impact on the conflict is insane you know it's just kind of kept it going i guess because it probably would it you know for all intents and purposes it probably would have been over by now if foreign powers hadn't intervened for one for one way i'm not talking mm. about um isis i'm talking about sort of just the wider sort of syrian civil war yeah. um yeah it probably would have been over by now yeah i have to agree really so what do you see for the future under Assad. If Assad's there for another, what, 20 years, what does yeah. it look like? I mean, oh, it, it really depends because if he, if he, if he, if him, if him himself in particular stays in power, um, if the Syrian civil war ends in the next sort of five, 10 years, which it pro which, which hopefully it will, um, if he wins it, I I don't know. I I would I would I mean the, the optimist in me wants him to like I don't sorry it sounds strange the optimist in me who if he wins wants him to liberalize like he was not supposed to but kind of expected to I, I you mm -hmm. know I'd want him to kind of hopefully rebuild the country even if it is with like Iranian Russian support I mean at this point it really just sort of does it I mean it doesn't sort of really matter at this point because it's so far down the line that we can't unentangle him from Iran and Russia it, yeah, or yeah. China even. So even if it is with oh, in China as well, and massive, we haven't, oh God, yeah, I, not even I could get it. started. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> even touched on it, but um, yeah, Chinese support rebuilding infrastructure, for example, because they, they obviously they need the, the Belt and Road Initiative and mm. Syria would be the perfect place for China to rebuild. Because I mean, if they rebuild entire cities, with even if it is with sort of like Chinese technology and stuff, I mean, Syria I, mean, I think care. they've already kind of started, haven't they? I think there's yeah, quite a few yeah. big Chinese projects in Damascus mm. currently. Yes, yeah, yeah, in areas under Assad's control. So yeah. it's like, and also Damascus, I mean, if you look up pictures of it, like compared to the rest of Syria, it looks like a virtual paradise. I mean, yeah. I would feel comfortable walking. I mean, I, I know people who've gone to Damascus when it's yeah. under Assad, and I've said it's like a fairly nice place, you know? it's. I mean, obviously, you going to say that compared to like you know 50 kilometers outside the city walls where someone's just been decapitated by terrorists something like that you know or died yeah. in a gas attack or a barrel bomb you know it's and it's like if the chinese especially especially the chinese if the russians and the iranians get involved and then i mean i i fear for the 
the AANES, AANES, yes, in yeah. northeastern Syria. Sorry, so many acronyms. Um, in northeast Syria, because, you know, once the civil war ends, whether or not they'll be allowed to sort of even exist anymore. And the once, Kurds in Rahava. Once all it's... the attention's diverted to them, yeah, it's exactly. going to be a lot harder to maintain yeah. any form of I mean, stability. I would think now because they're so, I don't want to say entrenched because that kind of, I don't want to predict anything, but hmm. because they're so entrenched, I would hope that they can kind of, and because the Americans, you know, I'm I'm not going to get started on the Americans, yeah. but because the Americans have kind of supported them, a little bit and actually i say a little bit through like arms training whatnot the kurds the assyrians and the christian groups in that region i would hope that they can kind of then assad can at least put apart his sort of repressive style and then hopefully work against sort of turkish incursions in the north you know mm. I, if if assad's still in power in 10 years i would hope to see sort of at least a sort of federalized slightly federalized country an economy that's slightly repairing even if it is with chinese russian iranian help like i've said mm. you know because it's so the conflict is so entrenched at this point the effects of the conflict is so entrenched you know yeah. i'd hope that people can feel safe to return not in a they should return but more of a i would hope they want to rather than they I, should I, there is some symbol of peace yeah for syria uh, in the future yeah i mean and i think we're at the point now where it's safe to say that Assad is the winning-ish side in the civil war. I mean, you know, yeah, it's unfortunate that he's there, but then also it's like, who are the alternatives? Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll flip the question on its head. If he dies tomorrow, what do you think would happen? <sighs> apart from it, a hellscape. I, yeah, apart, apart from <laughs> a hellscape, um, it, would, it would just be chaos. You know, I mean, yeah, it, it would just be chaos because you'd have rival group, you'd have his family, you'd have his wife who might even sort of take up because she's an insanely influential figure. It's, okay. it's quite actually quite shocking how influential she is as, as a as a woman in the region and with with lots and lots of power and money behind her and supporters mm. as well. Um, she's quite integral to his sort of power being there. Um, and then you've got his fairy and family members. Syrian army intelligence, you know, it's it would it would be hell. Um, mm. it, it kind it kind of it's it's horrible to say, but it's kind of it's better that he's there than not. Yeah, because we don't know what the alternative would be. I mean, it's just just like, um, I I would I would personally say it's just like in Russia, you know, we no one wants Putin there, obviously, mm. but what's the alternative if he's gone or if we assassinate I mean, him or I mean, someone I guess we saw him, it's like the same thing in iraq really you yeah yeah it, down, it would be it yeah it would, it would be this yeah exactly it, it would be the exact same as that in my opinion it would you know yay we've got rid of this dictator what do we do now oh brilliant now there's another another civil war uh, i mean 15 syria becomes... evil people lining up to yeah the it's like it's it's like a hydra but instead of two heads that come out it's a thousand you know mm. and they've all got guns they've all got there's also like the whoever's behind them with vested interests in keeping syria or whatnot like unstable because they've got economic or military or personal reasons for getting involved and then mm. you know linking it it's just like iran and china and russia and all these places with these strong men you know yes with their horrible governments 
and horrible people. But what's the alternative? You know, we get rid of Putin, get rid of Xi Jinping, get rid of, you know, whoever. What happens then? You know, then you've got another madman or you've got another, you know, horrible leader. And it's just like, mm. what would you do? So I, I think I you think always Syria's have to remember so... if, if 15 people are up for a job like that, mm-hmm. the worst one will come out on top. Oh, thank you. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug, actually? Have you got anything you'd like to throw out there? <sighs> um, I would just say, anyone listening, subscribe, follow everyone who writes for the uh, the Modern Insurgent. Um, obviously, I'm I, you know I'm, I'm incredibly biased, but I'm just going to say we you know I'm just going to plug us as one of the best out there. Obviously, hundred um, percent. Yeah, obviously, um, you know, being confident, and all that. <laughs> gotta gotta plug us like that. Um, it, just listen to other podcasts, and there's. You know, there's, I mean, we've mentioned some on this and watch films and stuff like that and just get involved and know, you know, um, I would say Popular Front's another one to sort of, uh, they are, they're probably the, you know, independent. They're the gold standard for what we yeah, are they're, they're, Yeah, they're our yeah, inspiration, 100%. Yeah, they're our inspiration. So. Shout out to Jake and the yeah, shout, other shout man Jake over at Popular Front. Yeah, exactly. And then follow this, in, this Instagram account. So I think one's our, our Wars. There's varying R Wars, but like R Wars 2, I think, is one of them. You know, a lot of the news I get is through places like that and other people at the Modern Insurgent. So, yeah, shout out to all the Modern Insurgent people, especially. Um, follow them all, you know, donate to the Patreon if you can. Massive help to the growth of the organization. Yeah, just hopefully, sort of independent journalists and writers, analysts, and stuff like that can kind yeah. of keep thriving. 100%. So to reiterate, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, pretty much everything nowadays mm. on uh, the app Modern Insurgent. All one word, no no dashes, nothing like that. Modern Insurgent. Same for Patreon. Uh, and I think that is everything we need to cover. So mm. thank you and goodbye, everyone. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles. Reporting on the underreported. reported